2: You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
3: Something that also is helping equities move higher here are airlines. You got Delta has been up for the last, uh, United, I should say, has been up for the last few days since it reported. You also had uh, Southwest American Airlines all kind of beating on earnings. The overall uh, airline passenger index is also doing quite well. I, Paul, I thought no one was traveling anymore. I,
1: I don't know. I
3: mean, he did, but he's a late bloomer, so there's that. <laughs> Joining us now is George Ferguson. He's a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst. George, I, I thought we were going to be looking at 2024 weakness because everyone spent their money and they're done traveling what is happening with airline earnings right now
4: i mean i think a lot of it is being driven frankly by guidance well you know well some of the <clears throat> excuse me some of the profit reports might be coming out better than people expected <clears throat> when i look at yields uh this morning you know we got american uh, alaska and southwest yields were down in the domestic business on all three hmm. alaska yields were down six or seven percent uh, american yields down similar number uh, Southwest really just let a uh, load factor fade away into the 70s and took a yield down sort of two percent. So to me, you know, they're guiding to, to better results as as you know next year as, as we get into one. Not actually one Q doesn't kind of doesn't look great, but as we get past one Q, the the overall guidance for the year looks a bit better. So airlines, I think think things are going to firm as they get into next year, but I don't think it looks like a healthy market at all from the numbers I'm seeing in Q4. So.
1: It's interesting, George, are we – give us a sense of where we are in just in terms of air travel. Have we established a new post-pandemic normality in terms of where leisure traffic is and where business traffic is? Do we kind of know how that market looks?
4: Uh, so comments from United were that business traffic wasn't back to 2019 levels. Uh, they said they saw hopeful signs in one queue. Uh, so yeah, so <clears throat> as near as we can tell, sorry, with some of these results – Business hasn't come back fully. Is this the new normal? I would guess it is, right? Because we're, uh, you know, we're, I don't know when the pandemic actually sort of ended, but we're probably a year and a half past. And I would expect most of, you know, normality to have returned to our lives. So it seems like we still have some level of deficit on pre pandemic business travel, but leisure travel has definitely exceeded that. I think the airlines have just sold capacity they would have sold the businesses into the leisure side. And I think that's making the fare softer.
3: So you say that the quarter didn't look that great, first quarter looked soft. I get that. But then you said that after Q1, things start to look a little better. What's going to look a little better? Is it business travel? Is it we just keep doing vacation stuff? We do it domestically rather than internationally? Or is it still across the board?
4: I, I said that after Q1, the airlines think it's going to look better. I don't. I don't see it, right? I think the big leisure um, bounce back was last year, uh, 2023, and I think that you could see softer domestic yields all through the year. But you know, we had Scott Kirby at United Air- Airlines earning earlier in the week, and he's telling us how you know he's getting traction from premium products, and that's going to help him drive better profitability through next year. I mean, you know, companies like Alaska. Um, <clears throat> They have premium product, but I think they're roughly the same amount. Unlike United, that's adding it. Southwest does, has no premium product, uh, so there's and there's a lot of other airlines that have no premium product, and I think they're going to be fighting for the, the base leisure traveler. I think it's going to be difficult. But hey George, against the airlines, they could yep. see, see it coming, sir.
1: George, you're out in Los Angeles, the Aerospace Supply Chain Conference. How is the supply chain for the airline industry? Can they get the planes they need?
4: That's rough. So, uh, we saw the news on Boeing uh, today, today, or I guess late last night from the FAA, about not allowing them to increase. The discussion at the Aerospace Supplier Conference is all about labor, labor, and labor. Wow. There's been a lot of turnover. Yeah, there's a lot of turnover in the industry. The backfill needs to be trained. They're not fully trained. They're not efficient. And there's still people having a hard time finding labor. Mm -hmm. And so the u.s aerospace industry is in, in pretty tough tough straits i think mm-hmm. I, I think young kids you know, a lot of the discussion here is that young kids you know young professionals don't want to come to this industry they'd rather work for amazon they'd rather work for google than go to work in the aerospace industry and so they're having a real hard time backfilling and training and keeping people in the industry
3: so to that point what happens if boeing isn't allowed to produce the plane that the FAA said, I can't even tre- keep track for, to be honest with you, but if they can't produce it, what happens to those that have ordered it?
4: <laughs> okay, so, I mean, right now what the FAA said is that Boeing can't increase production, right? Okay, so they already of the merits. They're already building, they were building about 31 a month last year. They were supposed to rate break to about 38 a month at the end of the year. The question is, have, have they? So will the FAA let them continue at 38? And then as I understand it, the FAA is gonna inspect their manufacturing processes because they're quite concerned obviously after the Alaska incident to make sure it's stable, make sure that Boeing can build aircraft uh, safely. Uh, So my guess is you got something that's gonna last part of this quarter. I mean, there's only so many sites they can really inspect, right? You've got a lot of inspection down in Wichita, a lot of inspection up in Renton, Washington. Those are the two main factories. The FAA could go deeper and do some of the other suppliers, which they probably will. But there's not a lot of sites to inspect. My guess is that deliveries for customers that expected airplanes in 2024 could get pushed out, probably will get pushed out maybe into 2025. Could be customers, core customers like United, Southwest, Ryanair, uh, Alaska Airlines. They've been taking the majority of the orders recently. So you'll hear some howling from them. Uh, I think you already heard some howling from united ceo kirby right on the on the max 10. uh so i think that's what's going to happen You'll just see deliveries get pushed out and pushed into next year hopefully boeing can recover that and bounce to higher rates that's all about their recovery
1: so i mean the boeing stock is is off 5.8 percent today on the news off 22 and a half percent year to date here so the street is really concerned george i mean is what is there a I mean, I just kind of feel like they're kind of too big to fail. They're too big for anybody to really do anything because it's a duopoly, them and Airbus. But are there some? What is it like a downside scenario here for Fox? It would it be government regulation? Would it be uh, what's kind of spooking the market?
4: Well, I think you already have part of that downside, right? And that's more intense government oversight and regulation. Frankly, that probably should have occurred anyways. You know, the FAA is also going through some difficult times during the pandemic. Lost a bunch of personnel. They need their skill sets developed, sharpened. Um, so this process could be slow. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I do think they're, you know, I think they are close to too big to fail, given that they're such an important government contractor, uh, you know, one of the, f- the few big primes that can make airplanes in serial production. Mm-hmm. Um, question is, what, you know, what could the government do if they had real big problems on the commercial side? I don't think we're there yet, though. I think it, it still is a duopoly. If you wanted to get in the back of the line for an Airbus A320, the competitor right now, I, you know, if, if we just add up all the orders they have and their production increases, you're out eight years. And I think some some of those orders are definitely long dated orders. So maybe if you got in the back of that line, you'd be out five or six years before you started getting airplanes. That alone is going to keep Boeing keep folks going towards Boeing for for airplanes. Yeah. But that's only if things don't degrade from here. If things degrade from here, you got a much bigger problem.
3: George, we have like 40 seconds. But um, for an airline that was supposed to get a plane that's not getting it, can they have? do they have other a- planes that can suffice for them, or are they going to be in the hot seat?
4: So I think you're going to see the airlines holding on to their older aircraft. If they have older aircraft, they'll fly them longer. It's been good for the maintenance business. If they don't, they'll have to uh, shut down some of their schedule and not fly as much. That could help the U.S. airlines in 2024.
1: All right, George Ferguson, thank you so much. We appreciate that. George Ferguson, he's a senior aerospace, defense, and airlines analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence.
0: Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help. And access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading.
5: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders
2: Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One
1: of the big uh, drivers, as Nora was just reporting, was IBM, our good friends in Armonk, New York. Great headquarters, by the way, up in Armonk. the stock's up big. I mean, it's close to an all-time high. It's at a 52-week high. Uh, I'm going to break out what's driving our good friends uh, at IBM, uh, Anurag Rana. He joins us. Um, he covers set technology for Bloomberg Intelligence, and it turns out he's pretty good at it. Uh, <laughs> Anurag, you've been following Tesla for a long time. Give us, the, give us the, the bull case for Tesla right here. The market really seems to like what they saw in the earnings last night.
6: So for IBM, you know, one of the biggest things we talked about yesterday was the free cash flow number came out at 12 billion. I think we were. You know, we were slightly above the, the street and saying that, you know, I'll be happy if they do 11 billion. So I think that really speaks both to the organic growth rate of the company, operational efficiencies, you know, improving margins, uh, taking care of accounts receivables, all sorts of things. So I, I think it's really good print for uh, for uh, IBM in terms of free cash flow, but also the, uh, you know, the guidance on the um, um, you know, organic growth rate, because we were going in. So in fourth quarter, they did three percent growth rate in constant currency. We thought at least for the first you know few quarters they're going to talk about three to four percent and then accelerate. But they straight away went with a mid single-digit number. So I think overall good for IBM, good for the rest of the tech space. I mean, I feel pretty happy about it.
3: Um, what I know, this is kind of a, probably a dumb question, but like, what in IBM's business model to a leite like me? It, are they doing well? Like break down the different categories in a way that makes sense to Alex.
6: <laughs> so they, are, I mean, they still are a very big piece uh, of the entire tech ecosystem. They have very strong relationships. They have a good consulting business. They have Red Hat. They sell mainframes. Now remember one thing. I mean, I, I know people got very is getting very excited, but if software spending is climbing between ten to twelve percent. IBM still growing, you know, six to seven, so they're still underperforming the entire broader software space. But that's okay because, you know, when you go from three to six, that's a big change also in terms of the growth rate. This is just a matter of overall tech spending improving after two years of underinvestment. This is something that we have been saying for so long. Tech as a portion of total GDP is a very small number. Most of the companies around the world, barring the consumer technology companies that we see, have underinvested in technology. So when you have rail, rail, you know, companies or airlines or auto insurance companies, they really need to be more digital. And one way to get digital is to move a lot of their uh, infrastructure to the cloud. So all of those things play in well. We have not seen good spending in two years. I'm pretty happy that uh, 2024 may we may see a rebound.
1: So, Honorable. Anurag- How does IBM fit into the AI discussion? Because I know the the CEO called out the client demand for AI is accelerating. How how do they play in that space?
6: So majority of the stuff that they're going to do is on the consulting side. So if you are a large company, you need to figure out what to do. They have a lot of consultants that can help you clean up the data, you know, use whichever model we want to use. You want to use something from OpenAI, Anthropic, all these companies that are out there, they'll help you with that, help you train the models, and then uh, at the end of the day, make it for your business case. It's not as easy as just you know, using ChatGPT and answering questions. Um, for this, for an enterprise use, you need to do a lot of data cleanup, data aggregation, because that's what's needed to clean up your, uh, you know, the models itself.
3: How fast and long can that kind of growth rate of six, 7% Go.
6: I think if this year they are able to go to six, seven percent, you know, I could expect then, you know, another hundred to two hundred basis points improvement next year, and that's actually not a bad deal because you remember the old IBM just about four or five years ago, they were not growing at all. So in in order for them to actually come up with a high single digit number next year would be would be really welcomed by the market.
1: So what's the read through here, Anurag, for you know greater tech here from IBM is. Can
6: I can I say
1: I'm just going to go out and start buying more of these names? I'm looking at like Nvidia, for example, up one and a half percent today, up 25 percent year to date, and of course up 220 percent over the trailing 12 months. I guess this is a pretty good read through. Is that can I do that?
6: Yeah. So you know, we had uh, run a CIO survey back in December, and you know, we were we kind of got the indication that it's going to be a year of spending uh, more aggressively compared to the last two in 2024. But, you know, the way we had built that and, you know, we got the chip strength going on right now that probably carries on till the summer. And then after that, we see, uh, you know, strength in the software and the, and the consulting area, which are more of the downstream play. But it's possible that we may see that bounce back, you know, as early as second quarter or, you know, going into it because, um, you know, things, I, I think the leading indicators are good at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that, you know, when we were thinking about a second half recovery for tech spending, you know, it may actually happen in second quarter or maybe even as late late as first quarter.
3: What are the derivative plays from IBM, their suppliers, that kind of trade?
6: Yeah, so you have you know, companies on the services side, you have companies like Accenture, you have Capgemini in Europe, you have TCS and Infosys in India. So those are the four big ones from the consulting side. On the software side, I think this bodes well for everybody, whether it's you know Microsoft, AWS, ServiceNow, um, Salesforce, Workday, you know, you know the big software vendors, all of them should see some downstream effect if, we, if you know, tech spending does uh, recover it this year.
1: All right, let's preview uh, Microsoft here. I mean, again, this, the stock just hit a $3 trillion uh, market capitalization, which got a lot of people's attention. What's kind of the story here for Microsoft?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's a very similar story. We, we recently published a piece today which says, you know, there is going to be a bigger delta between Microsoft and Apple's growth rate going forward. And large portion of that is um, an improvement in the cloud and the other product growth rate in the second half. Now, if you look at, uh, you know, the, the Bloomberg terminal and, and look at the function EM10, you will see that Microsoft growth rate has picked up for the next four quarters. But majority of that is because of the activation deal. If so. you peel through that and you know look at it, organic growth rate Street is still expecting that 11 to 12% over the next four quarters. We think that's going to change. We think the second half that growth accelerates to you know 13% or so, um, and that's because of uh, the, the reasons that we mentioned. Above, that after two years, uh, companies are finally spending. And um, one of the things we saw was, you know, if you have a cloud business infrastructure, then you can reduce your usage because that helps you reduce your costs and that's what a lot of the companies have done over the last two years we think that's going to take a reversal this year um on top of that microsoft should get more benefit of their relationship with open ai because they are open ai's backend uh, infrastructure so i think that's also contribute so i we are expecting you know growth rates to pick up for microsoft in the second half
3: uh, IBM trades at twenty estimated times PE, uh, and you're taking a look at uh, Microsoft trades at like thirty-five. Are, are, yeah. are these accurately valued here?
6: I think it's, it's a very tough question to say because, you know, frankly speaking, I do not know if IBM will ever catch up to the. Uh, software industry growth rates because they have two units in there that you know may may be able to bring it down. But Microsoft, you know, one could argue being almost one third of the software market, such a big company, it's still growing 12, 13, 14 percent. That's a that's a, that's a pretty big number, and you can't really say that about any uh, you know large tech company in terms of high gross margin and high growth rate. It's very unusual to see that.
1: All right, Anurag Rana, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, Anurag Rana, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, coming to us from the technology capital that is, of course,
2: Chicago, Illinois. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Looking at Tesla, um,
1: stock's down 10%. Uh, For most companies, that would be tragic, but this is like another just an average day for the volatility of this (laughs) stock over the years. But again, some fundamental concerns coming out of the earnings last night. That's where we want to start in the tech space today. And we can do that with none better than Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here with Tesla. And it's not just a Tesla story. It's an EV story. There's real concern in there about end-of-market demand for EVs. Did Tesla help itself last night, or maybe not so much on that particular issue?
7: Look, I think it was a train wreck conference call. And (laughs) and, 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 And Is that a train wreck Elon Musk
3: Yeah, I mean, isn't it always in some ways? I would
7: call this just a train wreck conference call, even for Musk. Because the the problem here is that it's actually not even so much the demand issue. It's about the price wars. And not giving guidance, not giving strategic goalposts. Look, the dream AI, we're huge believers. Disruptive yep. tech, where this is all going. But in the near term, when the plane's crashing, people are not focused on salted or unsalted pretzels. <laughs> and that's the problem here that's happening on that call because of the price wars in China.
3: Well, did is it did Tesla miss a trick by not spending more money making a cheaper car?
7: No doubt. I mean like I if ideally Right now, we'd have a sub $30,000 Yeah, car. exactly. But
3: Instead, we have a Cybertruck that no one on you know City Street can park.
7: Look, I mean, but that's one of the balances, because they have to also go innovative, mm-hmm. high end. You can't just be low cost. And the technology here, it's taken time. I mean, you really had to have a Mexico facility. You have to build out Austin in terms of from a Gigafactory perspective. They are, look, they're doubling down on EVs, where Detroit and others are peeling yep. back. Yep. No one argues with the strategy longer term, but from an investor perspective, a lot more questions and answers. And that's why I think it was a little bit of a black eye last night in terms of a call from Musk. Hmm. So where
1: is the company in terms of communicating the real on the ground situation in China? What do they really think China can be for them?
7: Well, two cities, the demand side, I think actually stabilized to they've gained some net share. Clearly BYD is, is really the formidable competitor there, but then it comes down to the price war. And, and that's, look, that's the crux of everything. Is there is, a price war just in Japan or are we talking kind of globally here? I'd say globally, okay. but the heart of the price war is in China. Okay. Mm-hmm. And with price war, you've already had prices come down 20, 25%. You wanted to see last night a lie in the sand. Okay, we'll cut around the edges, but we feel like most of that's in the rear view left a door open and that's that's the frustration Mm -hmm. here. This is really a more of a margin declining story rather than a demand falling off story.
3: I have to say, Dan, this sounds like you're a little bit cautious on Tesla. I always think of you as like the tech bull, like no matter what, you get to find the silver lining. Like, this feels like a big moment.
7: Look, I think it's, I'll call it, it's another inflection point where we've had over the last decade periods where Backwards against the wall. How are you going to perform? And this is another one of those. Mm-hmm. So, the long term, to your point, the long term story, decade long, sure. it's there. But also, you can't be smoke and mirror, right? I'm not going to wear the rose colored glasses saying that this was a great conference call. I mean, if you looked up in the dictionary, disaster right now, <laughs> well, there, there, there'd be a picture of that conference. <coughs> well, called. I think the,
1: the analysts on the street reflected, Alex. I mean, you look at the ANR function on the Bloomberg mm-hmm. terminal for analyst recommendations, there's 22 buys. 24 holds mm-hmm. and 12 sells.
3: But this also raises the, the question, and I, and I got some grief on this yesterday, but like, what, what what is Tesla? Is it a car company? Is it a software company? Is it a tech company? And then how you value it. So if it's going to be a software company, and an AI company, may, maybe it's okay. But if it's going to be a car company, then you can't value it the way it is. Like, how, how do you even start to price all that
7: in? Yeah, and we've always viewed it, and we talk about a lot on the show, disruptive tech. And, it's and, all and, of it. And, and that, mm-hmm. and it speaks to where I could argue like, this could be a trillion, trillion and a half mark cap as it goes through on AI and the vision on EV, especially as they double down. But as they go through this interim period, must talked about they're in the middle of two waves and that's essentially where they're caught. You cannot keep giving up margins. You start selling Gucci sunglasses for $100 of CVS, you're not selling them for $2,000 of Madison Avenue. Mm-hmm. So the problem is that it's a margin oh, story. That's the issue right now for investors. You need guidance. You need an adult in the room, and instead, it was felt like more like preschool.
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the people that aren't recommending the stock,
7: most of them
1: are traditional auto analysts, and they sure. know it. Eventually, yet it gets down to bending metal, and the bending metal business is not a great profit business.
7: Sure. And I think we've seen that in the three one, three area code as there's the transition to EVs and everything that gm yep. and, F- and Ford have gone through. But, Paul, to your point, like it is disruptive tech. yep totally. it is so, but this is this is a little white knuckle period right now.
3: All right. let's broaden out to other tech because like IBM, awesome Microsoft, three trillion dollar company. like I mean, the the old school, what do you call them yesterday? the boring? yeah, the, like like, it's like old you know tech. like yeah. the old school tech so hot right now. Sustainable? What do you you think?
7: The AI revolution's here. And we've talked about the new tech bull market, which we talk about starting in the fall. We believe this goes well in 2025 because it's the biggest tech transformation in 30 years since the start of the internet in 1995. So when you look at IBM, you look at SAP and some of the others, they're going to benefit from this. Now, clearly leading this is the godfather of AI, Jensen and NVIDIA. And of course, what's happened, Redmond with Nadella, which is why I believe a year from now, we're talking about $4 trillion market caps with Microsoft and Apple. And I think that's why next week, you look at Apple, you look at Microsoft, I think that's really going to be an eye-opener for a lot of those bears that maybe they came out of hibernation mode a little the first week or two of the, mm-hmm. of the year. Yep. I think it sends back into the caves.
1: When we think about AI, that's clearly the long-term... I'm- intermediate term, longer term growth driver for just all things tech, I guess. My question for smart people like you is, how much of that spend do you think is gonna be incremental versus maybe just pulling out of my Mm. IT tech budget or something like that?
7: Yeah, I probably think about 50 to 60% of it is incremental. And I think that's the difference is that when you look at the incremental use cases, it's jaw dropping. And I think that's why CIOs are recognizing the process and actually the ability to use software and we think use cases right now are over 80. It was 15 use cases six months ago. What
3: I also find interesting about this is that this is a structural shift in the industry, yet it's still a cyclical industry. How do you know what an appropriate valuation is looking at that? Like, you know, this is going to be huge. You know, this is going to spend all the money, but hey, in the short term, maybe there'll be a downturn.
7: Well, I think a lot of the DCF spreadsheet warriors, what they can find in their 10th for their office building <laughs> in the spreadsheet is where growth's going next two three years so i think that, that they don't know and, and, and that's yeah. why we're boots on the ground trying to understand mm-hmm. like what the growth looks like two three years out then you could start to have a good better sense incrementally what these stocks are valued at i still think numbers for tech we sit here i think numbers for tech are up another 12 15 20 percent over the next 12 to 18 months, not just because of the efficiency, but because right now a lot of these models, I think very conservative relative to how they're laid out.
1: So as you sit here, uh, what's your top pick right here, Dan?
7: Well, it's it's Microsoft and Apple. I mean, to me, Microsoft as a cloud play, Apple, I continue to think that's probably the top tech pick here, especially on Renaissance of growth. And then you look at cybersecurity, it's a golden age for cybersecurity. You look at names like Palo Alto, and for those looking for smidcap, the messy of AI, you know that that's names like Palantir. Okay. Um, what don't you like? Look, so I think most that, hated. Thirty seconds. I mean, <laughs> m- most hated is Cisco, just because I think no. they're a shared donor. And I think you're going to continue to see the the legacy be share donors. Software are going to be the share gainers.
1: All right, I'm just going to quote from Dan's research note on Tesla. We maintain our outperform rating while lowering our price target from $350 to $315, reflecting reduced estimates. Our near-term confidence in the story is shaken, but we remain firm on our long-term bull thesis around Tesla and the broader AI story set to take hold. This is a pivotal period for Musk to get Tesla through what will help shape or haunt its EV future. (laughs)
7: Category
3: <laughs> there you go. These, are, these are serious. These are yep. serious. damage. All right,
1: so check Ives. out Dan's uh, research out there Great from Wedbush Securities. As Tom Keen likes to say, we protect the integrity of our research. Uh, Dan Ives joins us, Managing Director, Senior Thanks, Equity Dan.
0: Analyst for Wedbush Securities.
2: You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Alex, let's talk uh sustainable energy actually investing in sustainable energy if you remember back to the inflation reduction act at the time back in mid 2022 a lot of folks were saying boy this is going to be huge for sustainable energy investing one key investor is like i'm not so sure right now charles uh, charlie donovan joins us he's a senior economic advisor at impacts charlie you're a part of a story on Bloomberg, that january 15th that says a 50 billion dollar investor says biden's green law enriches middlemen what's going on there Charlie?
8: Well, as you said, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in 2022, a lot of high hopes and and clearly a necessary move in order to reclaim leadership in a a crucially important industry. But we have seen the implementation, uh, quite honestly, be disappointing. And a lot of that goes to the complexity around relying upon tax equity as the major channel with which uh, new projects get done. And there are alternatives. There are other ways to do this. So we really see right now that the technology is in the right place. The economics are increasingly in favor. But there are a number of ways in which the implementation of the IRA has proceeded more slowly Mm -hmm. than investors would have liked. And certainly the complexity doesn't lend itself to a, a scale at which what is really trillions of dollars of new money that can flow into infrastructure can do so at the pace that's that's necessary I
3: mean, you're basically saying that a bill passed by the government in some ways is inefficient so i get that however if we take a look at just gdp today like within that the contribution of, of business investment you can make an argument that that did reflect uh energy projects um and also the idea of the ira is that it's, it is a 10-year thing so Just because you're not breaking ground today doesn't mean you're not gonna be breaking down breaking ground in three years
8: well that's exactly right and also we we see a a canvas across a value chain in clean energy that is much more expansive than just thinking about solar and wind manufacturers so we think about it in an area where there's there's upstream just like there is in oil and gas where that's the production but you have a much much bigger set of companies who are involved in what we call the midstream so this is Mm -hmm. transmission and distribution it's about storage And then downstream, which is really much closer to the consumer and reflects the changes in which electrification of end demand is happening much more quickly than people thought. And there's a huge number of companies who are benefiting from the stimulus in more indirect ways there. And so it's really important to keep in mind that, as you say, although certain projects are now in the pipeline, have been announced, will take some time to come through. There are another number of other ways in which investors can play this this
1: structural theme in the years ahead. So I guess, agree- oh, thank you for the little button there, Ken. Uh, green investors. <laughs> oh,
3: it's not just me.
1: No, oh, no, good. no, I I've only been doing this for years. On, I know, you know, I know. you got to hey, push the I'm little d- button. Hey, I'm
3: new. This is
1: day three. <laughs> yes. Four? This is only year four for me. Tucker's been <laughs> doing this for 30. Um, all right, so talk to us about the investment returns that green investors have been dealing with. Not so great here, and, and if so, why? why is that?
8: Well, I think it's important to keep in mind, this is an industry that has been around for, a lot of people think of it as new, but it's been around for a while. We have had a number of really important waves of interest and investment, you know, going all the way back to the late 1990s. A lot of what we see in hydrogen today, for example, yep. are companies that had their IPOs in the late 1990s. So there, are some, there is some cyclicality here, and there are going to be times at which sentiment is more or less in favor. What's different now is that we have lived in the last decade through a technological miracle in which the technologies then enable uh, not just more green energy, but actually a global energy transformation in which electrons become the backbone of the energy system and begin to increasingly replace hydrocarbons. Uh, we're on the cusp of something that we've never seen before. And that's really about where technology costs have gotten to. Uh, It has certainly something to do with the policy environment. It has something to do with what um, is able and the innovations that have come through that drive to make this more accessible and cheaper for consumers. So, you know, there are going to be ups and downs as they're going to be in every industry, but I think it's important to keep in context With these previous waves and these previous areas of interest what's different now and that fundamentally comes down to the economics of these technologies
3: i mean sure but i gotta be honest like when when i talk to clean energy players and 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 even hydrocarbon companies what all like they like these tax credits like they dig them and they're in deep with them and that's making a lot of these projects economics like i hear you that the cost of technology is going down but without certain parts of the ira their economics are toast when it comes to this, and, and these are like billion-dollar worth of companies.
8: Absolutely, and we're, and in and, and what we have said and what we have written about is that these are appropriate uh, ways in which to stimulate. It's industrial policy writ large, and it really is about the jobs and the inward investment that's going to happen in the future, which industries and how is the U.S., and particularly U.S. companies, uh, positioned for that. What we have tried to call out is the complexity w- about how we get there. So it's not, uh, when you look at the more broad canvas and the IMF has talked about $7 trillion last year of subsidy into the oil and gas industry, we still have an unlevel playing field. And so that's why this kind of stimulus is necessary. So it's not the the reason for stimulus, but it's much more about the mechanisms for implementation that we're trying to, to, to shed light on because we see such a vast opportunity and we see how, how many investors are seeing just such a thin slice of this opportunity and, and clearly trying to just call out that there are a number of other ways in which this can happen uh, and there's a much bigger value chain there that can be invested in
1: hey charlie let's step away from the influx inflation reduction act i get a sense and it's just a sense um from an outsider that kind of the move to green energy is stronger Let's say in Europe that it is in u s um I'm you know, and some are saying it's maybe getting a little politicized here in the u s You can't even say e s g anymore in many parts uh with many parts <laughs> of the audience. How do you view that broader sense in terms of support?
8: well, there's clearly you know Europe is more vulnerable on energy, and so there's a very natural reason why uh that Good is point. that's the case, and clearly what we see is On the policy side, much more aggressive implementation of of targets, much more uh, national priorities with regards to both energy efficiency and clean energy itself. Uh, But I don't think that any country in the world is not touched by what is really now a competitive race for positioning in what is going to be inevitably a cleaner energy future. And that comes down to not just cleaner, but also cheaper. And so again, coming back to the point that, yes, green energy is one way to describe this, but actually the energy of the future, I think is a much more viable way to think about it. And in that sense, you know, the US has been asleep at the wheel uh, and really has seeded a lot of early technology leadership to companies in China. And this is the uh, European companies, as well as American companies are scratching their heads and figuring out how do they get back into the driver's seat. And there are some stunning examples of companies in Europe Mm -hmm. and the US who have that advantage, uh, but that is not a very uh, deep bench. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, that's what needs to happen now is for those companies, whether they're European or American, to find a way to become competitive in this race.
3: All right, Charlie, we got to leave it there. Thanks a lot, Charlie Donovan, Senior Economic Advisor at uh, Impacts on Issues, really investing sustainable.
2: This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal.